You know, gentlemen, since it's Father's Day tomorrow, I really wanted to open the Bible with you and find an example of biblical manhood. What is it? The qualities, the traits, the characteristics of a biblical man for husbands, fathers, grandparents, for spouses, for male friendship, for leadership, male leadership in the world. I was hoping to open the Bible and, and find that portrait for you today. Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse 1 says this, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, and he asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found anyone there in Damascus who belonged to the way, these would be the new Christians forming. If he found any Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Meanwhile, Saul... I was hoping for you this morning, gentlemen, a biblical example, a role model, what you could live up to and be. Someone, God could look at you and say, I recognize that creation. That's very, very good. And instead, we get Saul this morning. Saul, whose very breath, the Bible says, the word there, an interesting word, whose very breath is slander and murder and bloodshed. Saul, who happily, eagerly went from place to place, dragging men and women from their homes, binding their wrists, taking them off to prison. Saul, who will later write about himself in Acts 22, in Corinthians, and Galatians, and Philippians, he'll say of himself, I persecuted the church. I dragged men and women from their homes. There are many witnesses who could tell you this. I'm the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle for the persecution I brought upon the church. I attempted to destroy the church with zeal I persecuted. I was looking for a biblical portrait to encourage men today, and we get Saul. Happy Father's Day. If it makes you feel any better, a couple of weeks ago, last month on Mother's Day, when we opened up Acts, we got Sapphira, Ananias and Sapphira. Sapphira, the first woman in the Acts story, the first woman to have a speaking part, and her first words are her last words as she drops dead and is dragged off. That was Happy Mother's Day. This is what happens when we start in a book of the Bible, and for several weeks we stay trying to, to learn a message from God. We don't get to manipulate things for the holiday. Here we have Saul today with the church on purpose church has been expanding and growing, now from Jerusalem to Samaria, up the Judean coastline. And as one commentator says, we interrupt the expansion of the church for a bully named Saul. Saul, who marches off to battles like the Crusaders. You know, the Crusaders, if you watch the movies, you see them draw their swords. They put their swords in the air and they say, God will it. And they mean death and slaughter and bloodshed. This is Saul with zeal. He kill, kills for God. But as much as we know Saul for the way he hated Christians, and by the way, we don't ever really know why he hated Christians so severely. The Bible never says in one place, this is what I had against them. So we're left to do our best guesswork. But as much as we know that Saul hated Christians, we also know that Saul had this most dramatic conversion story that took place on the Damascus Road. Everyone knows the Damascus Road story. Acts 9, verse 3. As he, Saul, neared Damascus on his journey, 
Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who are you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They had heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground. When he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to, into Damascus, and for three days he was blind. He did not eat, or he didn't drink anything. So significant is the conversion of Saul in the book of Acts that it's told three times. And several times more, Paul will refer to it later in the, his own letters to the churches. Yet every time the conversion of Saul is told, careful Bible readers will pick up it's told just a little differently. Sometimes the followers with him heard the sound, but they saw nothing. Sometimes they see what Paul saw, but they heard nothing. Sometimes those traveling with him also fall to the ground. Sometimes there's confusion over, did Saul then go immediately up to Jerusalem and begin his ministry, or did it take him years, as Paul, Saul reports, who becomes Paul, as Paul self-reports, it took him years to get to Jerusalem. And this Ananias disciple, really, was he that significant in Saul's conversion? Because he's not always included in the storytelling. And it's my assessment that the core of the Saul story can be identified every time you read about Saul's conversion. There is a core to the story. And like all good storytellers, then a little bit of adaptation, a little bit of details here or there. But the core of the story is the story. Saul met Jesus, and Saul was changed. That's what conversion is. Conversion, in its clearest understanding, simply means a change. The most, most basic understanding is to turn around, to dramatically have a reversal in the way you're thinking and the way you're behaving. That's what happened to Saul on the Damascus road. Let's read the rest of the story beginning in verse 10. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your people in Jerusalem, which is to say, Come on, you really want me to go to Saul? He'll kill me. He's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him what he must suffer for my name. So, verse 17, Ananias went to the house and he entered it. He, placing his hands on Saul, he said to him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from the eyes of Saul. He could see again. He got up. He was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. If you read on according to the book of Acts, Saul then goes to Jerusalem and begins to speak and preach about Jesus, the one who's been crucified, who he calls Lord and Savior, and the people are standing around whispering, isn't this the guy who wreaked havoc on us? 
What's he doing, Saul, now in Jerusalem, preaching? The Damascus Road conversion, it quickly becomes sort of the quintessential example, the normative experience for Christian behavior, for the Christian experience. This is what a conversion looks like. And, and it doesn't take but a couple of hundred years. Then there's Augustine, and soon there's Martin Luther, and, and soon there's John Wesley, and all of them had these very phenomenal kind of conversion stories, and they all trace their story back to Saul, who saw lights and heard voices and dreamt dreams. And for some people, these kinds of conversions happen. But it sort of leaves the rest of us wondering, if you've not been on the Damascus Road and had that kind of an experience, boy, what does that say for our own little faith? The Damascus Road Conversion. There is an author, Heidi Peterson, I've not met, but she tells the story of working alongside a gentleman she just met. They were working on a Habitat for Humanity house, put their work gloves on, began to roll out the sod that would become the front yard of this home. These two didn't know one another, but as soon as he put his work gloves on, the gentleman turns to Heidi and says, you know, are, are you saved? Do you know that you're saved? Doesn't even know her name. But he asks, are you saved? And she said, well, I believe I am. He said, and when and where and what were you wearing and how did it happen and what's the date? To which she thought, you know, it's moments like this that I always dream of inventing a conversion story. Something really eye-popping that'll please him. But instead, she told him, well, I was born into the church. I sort of absorbed this Christian faith. I was baptized. Daily I grow. I've got my theological convictions have come to me through people and experiences and gradual study. And, and to me, conversion is more like a flower. She used the metaphor of a flower. She said, you know how a bud begins to unfold its petals one day at a time, and who's to say at what day that bud turned into a flower? It's been more like that for me. She knew that that wasn't sufficient for the man who said, well, I know what I was doing and what I was wearing and where I was, and I can tell you the date I accepted Jesus into my heart, the very specific moment it happened. Circled in red on the calendar, that's my Damascus Road story. He could tell her. Not everyone can compete with those kinds of Damascus Road conversions. Did you notice in the story this morning, there's another man, Ananias? Oh, he also gets a vision and a voice, and God calls his name, and he says, yes, and God says, get up and go. You're going to need, you, we're going to need you here. But wait, God, it's Saul. He's kind of a bad guy. Yeah, get up and go anyway. It's going to be all right. And Ananias goes. In fact, your Bible, what we read earlier today, verse 17, when Ananias went to the house and entered it, he placed his hands on Saul, and he was able to say to him, Brother Saul. By the way, this is the man who kills Christians. There's another little conversion happening in the story. Ananias, able to place his hands on Paul, willingness to follow God and do whatever God needs done, because as Mark said this morning, I kind of think, too, God touches humans through other humans. There are various degrees of conversion experiences and various ways they happened. I, I can guarantee you countless stories of disciples in the Bible we never hear about 
who quietly go on their way, who have more of a, a gentle unfolding of their conversion, just a gradual day by day, week by week, year by year, growing and moving and being transformed more into the likeness of God. Now, there are people who study the varieties of religious experience, and they will say to us, certainly there are these instantaneous twinkling of an eye moments, a line in the sand, a definite before and after life, like Saul, like Martin Luther, like John Wesley, people who had an instantaneous, very dramatic reversal in their life. And there are also people who experience things a little more gradually, the old life is slipping away piece by piece. They are changing directions. They are being converted, but it's not nearly so dramatic and earth-shaking. Whenever God does this work, friends, whenever people are being transformed and converted, that is the good news of the gospel in action. Whether it happens like the Damascus Road or a little more like the flower unfolding, who can tell at what point? a bud becomes a flower. Visions and voices, however, are often suspect today. I, we talked about this more towards the beginning of the sermon series when the first visions were coming. Visions and voices make some of us a little uncomfortable. I know I used to work in a psychiatric ward years ago. I provided care in a couple of different hospitals. I've met people who heard visions, saw visions, and heard voices. I, I met a man who thought he was the Messiah and therefore wasn't required to hold a job to care for his family. He was allowed to explode in rages of anger and do whatever he wanted because he was the Messiah. He heard, heard things and he saw a vision. And, and also a, a young teenage boy who was convinced he was Jesus and, and he heard a voice that told him to take his life. And so we know stories like this of visions and voices and we're alarmed. But when I read the Bible and I see folks who do have visions and voices, and then, as an Adventist Christian, I'm careful because, after all, the First Lady of Adventist Christianity had visions and heard voices, didn't she? And when I listen to people's stories, I become a little more humble about how God would like to communicate with people. It's not the same for all of us. We don't all see visions and we don't all hear voices, but some people do. It helps us to remember how uniquely different we all are. And it is amazing that we can look around and realize we are all human, and yet at the same time we are all so very different based upon the way our brain is wired and, and where we were raised and the country we came from and the cultural and social imprints, social imprints we have in our lives, the homes we were raised in, how very different we all are. You know, in my house, Tuesday night, there was an NBA playoff game going down. Now, I'm going to guess that some of you here care about the NBA playoffs like I do in my house. Who cares about the NBA playoffs? Who cares? A few of you care, and good for you. <laughs> Who could care less about the NBA playoffs? Let me see your hand. God will convert you. God will convert you. So in my house Tuesday night, when game three of the NBA playoffs is going, you know, I'd spent all afternoon on the telephone. We have a very active search committee 
going in this church because we need another associate pastor. I'd been on the phone all afternoon across the Inland Empire, Southern California, talking to potential pastors, leaving voicemails, but finally the game came on and I turned it on. First quarter, one minute before the ending of the first quarter, I think the score was 20-20, just a minute left to go in the first quarter. I'm not sitting, I'm standing this far from the TV because I really want my team to win. Nobody else is home, it doesn't matter what I'm acting like, I can say whatever I want. I care about the playoffs. And the phone rang. And there's 58 seconds, 50 seconds, and the phone's ringing. And I'm thinking, what kind of fool calls with one minute left in the first quarter? Who does that? You should be watching the game. And the ball goes up from Pierce's hand, and the phone's ringing, phone's ringing, phone's ringing. I know the answering machine is going to get it. And I say out loud to God, nobody else is home. I can do this. God, if that's a pastor calling back for our job, I am not going to work with that pastor. That pastor should be watching the NBA playoffs right now. Who does this? Now, I just have to tell you that I learned first service after telling this story, my good friend and colleague Ken Curtis said, I was the one calling you. because he thought we had a meeting here at the church and he had been sending me a text message, are you supposed to be here at the church? And I had already written, who schedules a game during the playoffs? But because I guess my message didn't get through, he's ringing my phone. I care about the playoffs, a whole bunch of you don't. So we're all wired so very differently. And so it is that way when it comes to the variety of religious experience we each have. There are some of you who've done a Damascus Road conversion moment. There are some of you who get a little vision now and then. You hear a little voice, sometimes audible, sometimes not. You get a little nudging or an impression. And there are some of you for which it just feels flatlined all the time. We are so very different, and it helps us to be humble about that when we listen to one another's stories. Some people hear things, see things. What would be the criteria then? Because the content of the vision and the voice really matters. If the voice is telling me to take my life, it's probably not from God. But if the voice or the vision or the prompting is for the purpose of building up the kingdom of God, building up the agenda of God for a little more healing and peace in the world, it's probably a God voice. That's a criteria for the messages, the variety of ways you experience a message from God. Helps us to remember this comes at all of us so differently and uniquely. And it is interesting to me, just a little bit of irony here in the story, that the two disciples who are named Judas and Ananias, and who are the only two people so far in Acts that we think are dead, Judas and Ananias, and here come two more disciples who get another chance at helping out the Christian church. By the way, when Saul's time for his conversion happens, I hope you noticed, while it's particular to Saul, it is not private. For Paul to have a turning around conversion experience on the Damascus Road, look at how many people it takes. 
Now he can't see, and someone needs to lead him to Damascus, and he'll need food and lodging when he gets there, and he'll be there for a few days, so someone needs to shell out for his needs. And, and then when he can see, and when he does finally travel to Jerusalem, he'll have companions who go with him, and for the rest of his ministry, there'll be people supporting him, by the way, to do what he does for God. Look at how many hands it takes for God's conversion process in Paul to be manifest. It takes a community, Bonnie and Tom, it takes a community for people to be converted. It's a beautiful message in the book of Acts. When conversion happens, you can tell. Not because somebody circled a date on the calendar, but because people live changed lives. We don't talk about the Saul story because it's such a highlighted, grandstanding, phenomenal thing in Acts. We talk about the Saul to Paul story because he's a changed man. Where there's hate, there's now love. Where there was judgment, there's now pardon. Where there was darkness, there's light. Where there was sadness, there's joy in the life of Saul and all the people he's touched. That's when you know conversion is happening. I just wonder for you, for myself, where are the places in your life this morning? Because we all have them. Maybe it's here in the church where God needs to work a little conversion process. A certain topic, a certain perspective, a certain experience, a certain idea, a certain challenge you're up against where you need, where I need the Holy Spirit to come in and allow the Holy Spirit to change my direction, change my attitude, change my picture of what God can do in the church. Look what happened for them. God brings the worst enemy of the Christian church and says to them, by the way, this is now who you're going to partner with. If God brought to the Adventist church the worst enemy, if God brought to the Christian church in America what we perceived as an enemy, would you be able to work with that person for kingdom good? What an amazing, amazing challenge. The soul conversion in the church, in your personal lives and relationships, at home, with your friends, your spouses, your children, your grandchildren? Where is it that God needs to work just a little miracle of conversion that would turn you around to bring healing and wholeness and good news gospel into your relationships? Would you listen for that voice this week? Where do you need a conversion? Let me tell you just one very personal conversion story that I've not shared from the pulpit, I believe ever, um, in the church setting. You know, when I decided to go back and study theology, it was about 10 years ago, and I was kind of a grown-up girl by then. But I knew my father wasn't going to appreciate that, be my choice, because I was brought up in a household that took the Apostle Paul very seriously. My father regularly read those texts, especially the headship texts, especially the one that says, an elder shall be the husband of one wife. And so it was, in our church growing up, one year they ordained a woman. And my father went home and had her for lunch. What is the church doing? And a welder must be a husband of one wife. What is the church doing? And every time that woman was on the platform, my father got up and left. Because he's not alone. A whole lot of people through the centuries 
have misunderstood Paul. But when I decided I was going to study theology, I realized, oh, God, oh, God. And I told everyone but my father, and it finally came time to enroll in school. And I was 33 years old, but I flew home to ask my father's permission. You would think I was going to go work in bars and... Dad, is it okay if I become a minister? My father looked at me and was not able to answer that question and shrugged his shoulders that day and walked away. And I got on a plane and came back down here and enrolled in school and thought, well, my father's going to be eating me for lunch every Sabbath. I actually said to him, am I going to be welcome in your home as your daughter? He was not able to answer me, friends. It took about two years, and my father came somewhere where I was speaking one day. And from that weekend on, my father came wherever I was with a camcorder in his hand. <laughs> and one day, it was the Oregon Conference, a women's retreat, a big place in Bend. I said, Dad, I don't think you can go in. It's all women in there. You really shouldn't go. He said, you watch me. <laughs> I'm going to sit on the front row and record this thing. You just let me in. One of the last things I remember my father saying to me, and he has dementia, and he doesn't know who we all are, but one of the last things he said to me was, that's my daughter, the pastor. And when you asked him how he got his mind around this, he would tell you, I just don't know, but what the Holy Spirit is doing, who am I to stand in the way of that? What is the Holy Spirit doing? And who are we, whether corporately as a church or privately in our relationships? Who are we to stand in the way of good news, gospel, salvation, healing, justice, wholeness that God would want to unleash in the world? So the church is in the business of being converted, converting people and being converted ourselves. And when it happens, conversion, that's a church on purpose.